I would describe myself as less stressed and more irritated <laughs> oh, okay. than I used to be. <laughs> irritated is a mood that I can work with. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a returning guest, by the way, of episode 95. A lot has changed since we last spoke, and after eight months, we do have a lot to talk about. She is the member of the Legislative Assembly in British Columbia for Cowichan Valley. She is the leader of the BC Green Party. She is here via the magic of Zoom. She is Sonia. First to know, Sonia, how are you? I'm pretty good, Mo. I'm I'm excited about tomorrow morning. My kids really know how to do Mother's Day. <laughs> uh, they've been planning for quite a while now, so I'm I've got a lot to look forward to at this moment. Oh wow! Well, I'm excited for you. Uh, that sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. And I just want to thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, I feel like you and I have a lot of the same concerns when it comes to what's happening in the province right now. I just want to point out. The last time you were on the show, we recorded the episode, and episodes are usually recorded a few days in advance, and the writ was dropped upon the release of the episode, and suddenly we were in an election. So this time, fingers crossed, I'm hoping for a release of this podcast that doesn't coincide with news like that. But nevertheless, I appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Yeah, if, if something on that scale were to happen again, I think you might be really hesitant to interview me. <laughs> <laughs> you might, yeah, he might be a premonition, a good luck charm, or I don't know, something in that realm. We do have to talk about this bombshell news from earlier uh, this week, or I should say last week. You've been a very big proponent of the BC government collecting and releasing granular data related to COVID-19. Certainly, it brings up issues of transparency in public health decision-making. It brings up issues surrounding equity when we talk about disaggregated race-based data. We've seen this type of neighborhood-based granular data made public in other jurisdictions in Canada, but we just weren't getting it here in BC. Of course, through post-media, we've learned of these leaked reports that the BC health authorities, including the BC Center for Disease Control, were collecting this data, but they were withholding COVID-19 data from the public. And this includes vaccination rates at the neighborhood levels, breakdowns about COVID-19 variants, and breakdowns by age, income, and ethnicity. I want you to explain it to me and the listener. Why is it a big deal that the government withheld all this information, information that they were collecting? They've obviously been making decisions based on this data, but why does it affect British Columbians that this information was not being released publicly? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot and how to understand it in a way that would really resonate in our, our personal lives. So last night I thought, imagine if you're visiting your doctor and your doctor says, you know, there's some stuff going on with your health. I'm not going to give you a lot of information. I'm not going to show you the test results. But here's the regime that you need to follow. Here are the, the choices, the sacrifices you need to make. And you just need to trust me. Don't ask me any questions. 
<laughs> and honestly, Mo, I like that's the closest I can come to to kind of encapsulating what I feel like the the breakdown in the relationship has become between the the government, the public health agencies, and the public at this point, which is for months and months since the beginning of the pandemic, really, there have been these calls for please provide us with more data, clearer information, help us understand what's informing your decision-making process, help us understand why you're asking the public to do certain things, why you're choosing not to do other things. I mean, I think, you know, any teachers listening right now are going to mm -hmm. be asking the question like, how is it that our concerns have been falling on deaf ears for, for the better part of a year now? Um, and the, the response has been, you don't really need to know all that. Just trust us. And yet trust is built by being transparent, sharing information, answering questions honestly, uh, listening to the concerns. And, and I just come back to the relationship between a, a doctor and a patient. Mm -hmm. If your doctor says to you, you need to do all these things, but I'm not going to tell you why. That's really hard. And, it, you know, it's not, of course, there has been data. We've gotten the case counts. We get kind of flooded with numbers at, at every one of these press conferences. But the kind of data that has been asked for by journalists, the, this disaggregated race-based data, the data around neighborhoods, the, the vaccination data, the age-based data, all of this helps give all of us a clearer picture, not only about our personal risks, our personal choices and decision-making, but also what is this virus showing us about social inequities in this province? What is it showing mm -hmm. us about inequality? And how do we use this information in a way that moves us to a better place as a province? We should absolutely be taking this moment that we're in historically and say, this isn't okay. You know, the fact that not only has COVID shown us where the inequalities lie, but it's deepened those inequalities. The billionaires have done better. Working people have done worse. The, the, impacts of this disease are felt far more by people who are already uh, on the wrong end of the inequality scale. So we need to fix that. What I'm gathering is that there's sort of been a violation of the principle of transparency, but then more so than that, because this information has been withheld, British Columbians haven't been empowered in getting the full-scale picture of this pandemic, which of course affects all of us. Is that a fair summary? It's a fair summary. And I think the other the other piece of this, and it's one of my, you know, topics that I think about and reflect on all the time, which is the health of democracy. Mm -hmm. And so when people don't feel that they have a trusting relationship with with government, with people in power, with decision makers, you erode that foundational and absolutely essential piece of democracy, which mm -hmm. is that, that trust. Now, you know, we go to elections, different parties get elected. You may be disappointed with that outcome. Um, maybe your party didn't get elected, but the expectation, I think, that's been built into how we expect democracies to work is that whatever party gets in, there's these 
basic levels of accountability and transparency and relationship with the public that have to be maintained. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the last decades, we've seen a, a somewhat steady erosion of that with things like Harper and his secrecy around, uh, you know, documents and, and files and the fact that there was a, a muzzling of government scientists. We see it with the, you know, early days of the BC Liberals and the deregulation that happened in, in the BC government and the kind of putting off to qualified professionals and, and corporations to do oversight and monitoring of land mm -hmm. use. We see it, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a phenomenon that is almost universal um, in our democracies right now, which to me, again, not unlike COVID, it's like, oh, this is a moment we have to recognize that we need to turn this ship and we need to rebuild those foundational pieces of democracy because the alternative is not good. Now, obviously, you can't speak for why BC health authorities withheld this information, but from a speculative, theoretical standpoint, what was to gain from health authorities only releasing a fraction of their available COVID-19 data? Like, I'm guessing, you know, they've crowded out the armchair epidemiologists from making criticisms, but beyond that, could keeping this information private really be used in a politically exploitative or manipulative way? Because as far as we know, the macro numbers that were being released were and are accurate, right? Yeah. I've thought about this a lot too, Moen. And, and ultimately, I think, you know, governments like to tell a story. We, we as you were mentioning, uh, our last interview was on the eve of the, the SNAP election. And we went into that SNAP election with a story. Look mm. at British Columbia. We did so well uh, with COVID nineteen. We were the you know the 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 great North American example of of what's possible, and <laughs> and we did it with by just asking people nicely to 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 do what we want them to do. Right? There was this whole mm. story. It was a, it, you know it was a it was an appealing story. I think that in some ways, what's happened since the election is that story has become a driver for both the level of transparency, the amount of data that's released, and the, the kind of relationship that, that's developed over these past months, in that government doesn't want to lose that story. They want that story to stay the same. Mm. And it's hard when, um, you know, if the data is showing a, a very different kind of story, it's, it's hard to keep holding on to that overarching narrative. And, you know, stories are very powerful. Uh, and they're an effective way that we, we work as a society. But when your evidence is starting to really show that your story isn't all that believable anymore, you have a problem. And you need to start telling a different story that is informed by that evidence. And... You know, I, I look back at January, February a lot when uh, Andrew Nikoforik's uh, piece in the TIE about the, the coming third wave and the variants and the work of the UBC COVID-19 modeling group, Carolyn Colin, Sally Otto, and they were saying, we can see what's coming. This third wave is coming. These variants are very serious. They're going to spread faster. It's going to be 
you know, very serious, here's mm-hmm. what we could be doing right now. Instead, we had encouragement from the public health officers and from the government to, you know, get out and explore during spring break. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that then it's a time for recognizing, okay, we need to bring more voices and more perspectives to the table. We need to be listening to critics because critics are important uh, in decision-making. You don't want everybody at the table that thinks the same way. You want people at the table who are outliers, who are going to question you and give you hard questions and push back uh, because then you're going to make better decisions. So obviously many journalists have pointed to some of the inconsistencies now espoused by Dr. Henry and Dr. Gustafson around this issue, saying that, you know, BC is transparent and we release all the information and now we know that isn't wholly true. Mm -hmm. Is this that serious of a breach of trust with the public that provincial health officer Dr. Bonnie Henry or maybe even BC health minister Adrian Dix resign over this? Look, I... I think this government now has to think hard about what its next steps are. And ultimately, and I've been saying this for, for months and months and months, they have to put that trust at the center of, of every step they're taking. How are they going to rebuild trust? For Dr. Henry and Dr. Gustafson to say, we are more transparent than the rest of the country. We are, we have been giving this data. This is an, a, an example of like, that story doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. It, stop telling that story. Connect these pieces. Understand why people are frustrated and angry and upset and work to regain that trust. That is, uh, that is the absolute number one priority that they should have. In terms of the steps that ultimately the premier and his cabinet have to choose to take at this point, that's that's up to them. But I hope that what informs their decision-making is a recognition that as a government in a democracy, they have a reciprocal relationship with the public and the public has to be trusted and respected and provided with honest, transparent information at every step of the way. Do you still have full confidence in Dr. Henry? You know, I, I think that uh, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things. I, I, I'm, I don't want to question Dr. Henry's skills and abilities. I want to understand really completely about the decision-making process. So when you have, on the one hand, Minister Dix or the Premier saying, oh, we defer to our provincial health officer on decision-making. But then on the other hand, when the premier's asked a couple weeks ago about travel restrictions, he says to a reporter, you know, we're going to discuss that at the cabinet table next week. Okay. I, I think that it's really essential that there is a clarity about how decisions are being made, what's informing those decisions. What are the goals that we're, we're, aiming for? How are we measuring success in those goals? So, all of this, I think, would help to reduce the level of stress and anxiety that people are feeling because when you're getting contradictory kind of accounts like that, 
it starts to get very worrying. And when we're in a health emergency and we all have <laughs> elevated levels of stress, anxiety, um, now for well over a year, and we know that there are mental health impacts to that, the thing that we need from leaders right now is clear, consistent, open, transparent explanations of how and why they are making decisions. It's it. I keep repeating it, but I think it is the it is the core piece here. I guess where I'm slightly confused is, you know, I'm not questioning Dr. Henry's competence. I'm not questioning her credentials by any means. But you've made this case that what's happened is an erosion of trust and erosion of democracy. It goes against the principles of transparency. It's effectively been really bad for British Columbians in terms of withholding all this information and, and speaking to the contrary, saying that everything is transparent. So as an advocate for the collection and the release of this data, mm-hmm. you know, how can you say it's such a big deal on one hand, but then on the other hand, not ask for the accountability in terms of, okay, someone has to be accountable for why this happened. Oh, I I absolutely think there has to be accountability. I'm saying that is on the government to to address that. That is their job. And and they need to step up and and do that job. Absolutely. We're talking about cabinet and the public health office as well? Yeah, I I think that there needs to be an acknowledgement. This is a moment for for this government to come out and acknowledge, okay, we see that what this has done. We see the kind of uh, impact that this has had to trust. And here are the steps that we're going to do to rebuild that. And at every step along the way, we are going to be more honest and transparent with you. I absolutely think there needs to be accountability. I'm just, you know, I, and it's, it's a, it's a line around to to walk around like we didn't want to politicize a health emergency that was what we saw in march april may june july august you saw all three parties in the legislature working collaboratively recognizing mm-hmm. that a health emergency goes beyond politicization and so I, like i'm not i'm not trying to score political points this is why i keep saying here's how i think you can do better Here's why I think it matters. Here's what I want you to do to rebuild that trust. Like if I was just interested in in political point scoring, I wouldn't be <laughs> I wouldn't be talking about that, right? Mm-hmm. I I just want my government, I'm a British Columbian. I want my government to do better on this front. I really do. So it does sound like, and again, it's only been a few days, but it sounds like you are largely dissatisfied with the response to this revelation. And we've only really heard from Dr. Henry and Dr. Gustafsson, but it sounds like mm-hmm. you're not satisfied in terms of the answers that they've given yet. No, and I think it really is is the premier that needs to to respond. This mm-hmm. is his government. And, and, and ultimately, he wanted... To be premier, he chose to be in this role. He chose to have an election to, you know, try to get a majority. He succeeded, and now own that responsibility. Be accountable, and step up to your responsibility. And then I think what what could happen next is not only are are they going to move forward from this point 
with the level of transparency that is in these documents that were that were released, but they're going to try to do better on on other fronts as well. We've been asking, for example, about um, are you collecting data on long COVID? So when we look at the BC CDC site, it says this many people have had COVID nineteen. Uh, this many, you know, X number are quote unquote recovered, but we mm-hmm. know that that's not an accurate representation. That for uh, a certain portion of people, they're not recovered. They're they're suffering from these long COVID symptoms. They have fatigue. They have brain fog. They have joint pain, muscle pain. Um, there's a whole range of uh, physiological and neurological. Uh, symptoms that in other countries, there's quite an effort going into, uh, you know, collecting the data around that, trying to understand it. And I know we have these, we have two long COVID clinics, but they are really uh, limited in in who they're serving. You have to have tested positive for COVID, for example. And mm-hmm. so in the early days when the tests were, were not being widely used and there were presumptive positives, People who are now, you know, a year later struggling on a day-to-day basis are being told, no, you don't, you don't qualify for even just being a participant in this research. Um, so I think that there's other areas now that I'd like to see some proactive uh, actions from this government and particularly along, around long COVID because we need to get policies in place that recognize that for some people and, and the, the really alarming thing about what other countries uh, are looking at with long COVID, the UK and the US in particular, is that it is affecting um, people at the their kind of prime working ages, right? Mm-hmm. Between 25 and 40. Um, it's affecting more women than men. Uh, and that the the symptoms can be debilitating to the point that people can't resume work. That's something we have to be taking very seriously. Sure. What are the policies we're putting in place to ensure that these people have protection? Last question on this data issue. I really want you to convey to the listener how serious you think this whole thing is. So from a scale of nothing burger to we need to go to an election right now because there is no trust in the government. How serious is this revelation that the BC government has been withholding information from the public while at the same time saying that, oh yeah, we've been giving you everything that we have. It is serious uh, and it should be taken seriously. It shouldn't be brushed off by government. Now for a lot of people just trying to make it through their day-to-day lives right now, it might feel like, okay, well, you know, how does this affect me? What does this mean for me? But the reality is when we have governments that are making decisions that are informed by data and evidence in a democracy, we should be, as the public, expecting to know that data and that evidence. And and when you hear people like Carolyn Colhoun talk about this, the the data is public data, it belongs to the public. And, and public health ultimately should have at its core the idea that you operate uh, at a public health level in a way that improves the social conditions of society. 
So mm. you collect that data to understand where those social conditions need improving, and you, inf- you use that to inform your policies to get you to better outcomes for more people in your society. And when we have the data that shows, for example, that the highest positivity rates are in the neighborhoods in Surrey where the lowest vaccination rates are, that's, that should be a very major red flag for all of us. We're not getting the public health care to the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. We need to fix that. Now, you have been very critical of the provincial government's overall COVID-19 response. You went so far as to call it complacent. I'm sure we could fill the hour with detailed criticisms, but can you summarize the biggest pieces of what the government did or didn't do that made you feel like they were not active enough, that they did not provide the type of leadership that BC required? Because these are all criticisms that you've made. Yeah, I mean, I go back to where we were in January and February when you had the the UBC COVID-19 modeling group showing what was potentially coming with a third wave. You had, uh, as I said, Andrew Nikiforik's piece in the TIE. You had a lot of uh, experts, epidemiologists kind of looking at BC and publicly saying, uh, we can't really make sense of what's happening here because um, it seems like a very passive response to what is potentially a looming threat of this third wave. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at this as not just in relation to COVID. And, and I've heard others comment on this, and I think that this is one of the, the ways that we can learn from this. But we're, <laughs> we have many overlapping crises right now. Um, we have a crisis, uh, a, a five-year health emergency in British Columbia mm-hmm. that has gotten significantly worse in the last 14 months. We are now losing five to six people's lives every day in BC to a toxic drug supply. We have a growing inequality crisis in British Columbia, and inequality is really corrosive to the well-being of society in general and to everybody in that society. We have a climate emergency globally, Um, and we have a housing crisis in British Columbia and in Canada, but here in BC, I mean, the last year has not only exacerbated inequality, but if you're not a homeowner at this point, you just saw prices of housing go up 30 to 40% in the last year. So Mm. you're even further away from being a homeowner than you were before this pandemic hit. So we, we have these overlapping crises and we, we can't, really afford, in my mind, we can't afford to be passive about them. We can't afford to just kind of keep shrugging our shoulders and sort of being uh, of this mindset, oh, well, we'll wait and see what happens. And then if it gets really bad, we'll do something. When we have so much evidence and so much information and so many solutions that we could be implementing, it 
to me is irresponsible to be passive about these emergencies. So the, the toxic drug supply, Dr. Henry herself in her 2019 report, you know, laid out that what we need is a regulated safe supply. There isn't a, a drug policy analyst or expert out there that it seems to be in disagreement with this. Mm-hmm. If we want people to stop dying from a tro- toxic drug supply, then we have to make sure that they have access to a regulated safe supply. I sent my husband out last night. I was really craving a beer. He went to a government regulated store and bought some regulated safe supply of beer. Right? I yeah. I mean it 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 might seem strange to compare it but that's exactly what it is it's not a healthy substance mm-hmm. it's it's a drug it's a mood altering drug that at a certain dose would absolutely kill me mm-hmm. and i go to a government regulated store and i buy it um you know i think we have to move beyond prohibition era thinking uh, when we are losing seven or five or six British Columbians every single day, this is this is a crisis. This is an mm-hmm. emergency. Um, so, uh, you know, I I I am concerned that the the response to COVID and and the kind of as you said complacency, the the kind of passive uh, response, particularly. Um, as we were careening towards the third wave, um, is indicative of of a challenge that we have in government generally, and it's not just in British Columbia. I'm not, you know, we're not we're not special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what we need is uh, a kind of governance that says, you know, when it comes to emergencies, we can't just keep doing things the same way and expect different outcomes. Um, I, before the election, uh, talked a lot about, uh, for these kinds of overarching emergencies where there is basically agreement across all three parties in the legislature about the solutions that would need to be brought in, put those parties together, uh, bring together an emergency, uh, all party committee on the toxic drug crisis get the the same experts in front of the the three parties get to a point where all three are saying yes we agree these are the solutions these are the recommendations we're making you've just depoliticized the response to a health emergency mm-hmm. and you're not going to have the government saying okay we're moving forward with regulated safe supply and an opposition member saying you know how dare you that's that's not allowed you're going to have all three parties saying we agree. This is the solution. It needs to be implemented urgently. People need to stop dying. You could do the same thing on, well, we were doing that on COVID before the election, not anymore. You could do it on on housing. You could do it on inequality. Right now, there is a committee on review and reform of the Police Act. I think that that is a, an excellent example of what should be happening. We should be looking at the period between two elections as a period of governance, not mm-hmm. a period of politics. Let's talk about the 
provincial budget, because I think it's related to what we're discussing right now. Mm -hmm. You also criticize the budget as lacking vision, lacking a clear sense of what we're trying to achieve as a province. Mm -hmm. You've already touched on the government being passive or complacent in a lot of areas, whether that's COVID or the opioids drug poisoning crisis. What are your main concerns around this budget that just came out? What is missing? And and we've obviously just talked about safe supply, but Mm -hmm. beyond safe supply, Mm -hmm. what else are we missing in this budget that you were disappointed to see not included? Three big things. Um, And I talked about this a a fair bit in the wake of the budget. The lack of uh, any reference, and I'm still kind of gobsmacked by this, the word inequality didn't happen once in the budget. It wasn't mentioned in the budget. Um, Climate change was there, but pretty peripheral, pretty on the edge, you know. Uh, And the mental health supports, I applaud the, the investment into mental health supports, but they are mostly crisis supports. Um, they're kind of like putting out, trying to put out fires in various places, as opposed to saying we need a systemic approach to um, mental health that recognizes that it is absolutely a part of health and healthcare, mm-hmm. and we need to incorporate it in a systemic way into our healthcare system. So the the mental health piece, you know. Yes, there was a nod to it being important, but we want to see systemic change there. The inadequate plan around climate change, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to subsidize the oil and gas industry in this province. We're spending $16 billion and growing for a dam that we don't really need, but that will be used to provide subsidized electricity to the LNG industry. Uh, And when you look at the ambitious plan that's being brought forward by President Biden, we are now in danger of being left behind, you know, being a laggard in response to climate change. The much of the world is responding in a way that says, we got to start putting our money where we want to get outcomes. And if we want to transition our economy, we can't just keep doing the same things. It will not transition by itself. And then the inequality piece. I mean, to not mention inequality in a budget at the month 14 of COVID-19, where, uh, you know, as, as we've been talking about, this pandemic has certainly shone a giant floodlight on both how deep inequality is and how dangerous it is, to not put that at the center of your overarching goal as a government to be recognizing that this is something that we need to put policies in place. We need to have goals. We need to have measures that ensure that we're getting to those goals around reducing inequality in this province. I'm 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 actually pretty surprised from a new democrat government that 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 is a budget that would overlook inequality. So what does inequality look like in a budget? Like we're talking about it conceptually and we understand that it exists, but what sort of things would be in a budget that would effectively address inequality? Mm-hmm. 
it, ultimately, it starts with a lens. It says, okay, the lens that we are going to apply to budgeting and to spending money in this province is going to have this, uh, this lens of, does this reduce inequality or not? And if it's not, you know, that's, that's probably not a policy we want to go through. And then we're going to show how applying that lens of inequality means that we are going to measure the success of our policies of how we're spending money in terms of have they resulted in a reduction in inequality. So it, it, it starts with, and this is again what I think the, the budget really lacked, it has lots of good investments and, and spending initiatives. I, I, you know, there, there's lots in there and some of it even does address issues of inequality. Um, but there's no overarching sense of a goal or a purpose in this budget. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're, we're, we're starting on a journey. It's 2021. We've just come through what for most of us has been the most disruptive and difficult year of, of many of our lives. And we're going to start this journey towards a British Columbia that we can feel excited about, that we can feel proud of, that's going to pull us together, that recognizes the importance of, of collective well-being, that recognizes that uh, we are better when we are working together on on trying to create a future that is is going to be better for our children and our grandchildren. And here are the goals that we're going for. And here's how we're going to measure those goals. And here's how we're going to measure success. And, and, and let's get moving on this journey together. That didn't exist in this budget. And what, mm -hmm. what I would have hoped for was like the budget being a kind of a roadmap with the, the final chapter uh, getting us to a place. I'm mixing my metaphors now, Mo, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> uh, the final chapter being a place that we can actually envision together of a more equitable society, of a society where we are actively anti-racist, a society where kids are not going to school in a system that feels like it is constantly operating in a place of scarcity, in a society where anyone who is struggling with mental health issues knows where they can turn to get the supports they need when they need them, in a society where we have recognized how important biodiversity and the protection of species is, uh, and we are going to lean into, you know, uh, the Guardian program, into Indigenous protected areas. We're going to lean into the fact that we see the success of programs like this in other jurisdictions, in, even here in BC, and that's the future we want. We're going to tell our kids, you know what? We've been degrading our environment generation over generation. We're going to turn that around. We're going to start making it better so that what we inherited from our parents, you're going to actually get something better from us. That's, that's the kind of story and journey that I would like us to be on in this province. And I think a lot of people also are, are, are ready for that. And that's what was missing in this budget. And so you have talked about this moment being a moment for transformational change. But I guess my question is, and I, it's basic, but I still think it's important. Why now? Like, Certainly, Christia Freeland caught blowback for calling the COVID-19 pandemic 
quote unquote, a political opportunity. And there are some critics that would say, no, the focus should be purely on public health and restoring the economy, not this huge transformative, uh, you know, public project of, of rethinking society. So, so why now? Well, <laughs> for, for a number of reasons. One, the conditions that existed before COVID-19 exactly led us to that moment. So, and, and we've had warnings from scientists and epidemiologists for many, many years, and we're seeing an uptick in these kinds of new viruses, new bacterias that are emerging from, you know, how we operate globally uh, that are creating these conditions for the emergence of pandemics. Let's, let's, I would ideally like us to uh, not continue to create conditions for, for future global pandemics, um, but also the conditions of inequality that meant that COVID hurt people so much more who were so much less able to have the choices to do things like work from home or rely on their savings or keep them and their families safe because they had no choice in the economy that exists right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that economy, this economy that we are operating in has created exactly the outcomes we've gotten right now. And I think we can all agree, like these have not been good outcomes for a lot of people. Some people uh, you know, have benefited enormously. The, sure. the super rich have gotten even richer. Mm -hmm. um, even the the kind of the people with wealth and assets have generally seen their wealth increase over this year. Right? They're spending less. The house prices have gone up, uh, and they've been protected because they can work from home. And mm -hmm. and I count myself among that. I know the privilege that I have. I am a beneficiary of of this uh, system. That's not okay. I want our system to put the health and the collective health and well-being of people at the center of it. And mm -hmm. that's what we have to measure. We talk about genuine progress indicators. Like right now, we measure the well-being of our economy by GDP. So, you know, uh, <laughs> A forest fire isn't bad for GDP because it gets a whole bunch of people working out uh, in the forest trying to put that fire out. Uh, an oil spill isn't bad for GDP because it gets a whole bunch of activity trying to clean up that oil spill. Mm -hmm. um, th this is not a measure that puts people and the environment and sustainability and children and health and mental health at the center. So we we need to measure our economy and what we consider to be a successful economy differently. We have those measures available, genuine progress indicators. And if we started to measure with the intention of, you know, what we are striving for is more, <laughs> better living conditions, better health conditions, better mental health, better education, things that as a human society, I think we should be recognizing this is this is what brings out the best in us, mm -hmm. then, then we can move in that direction. But if we keep accepting and adhering to kind of status quo approaches to things and not recognizing a moment like this is, is a time for transformation, just like after 
um, World War II. You know, the, the massive investments into society and infrastructure in, in Western Europe and, and United States, Canada, meant that the conditions were created for this flourishing of society for decades to come. Mm-hmm. And then we hit the 1980s and we get this new sort of neoliberal um, approach to things where it's, you know, you're on your own. It's all about individuals. You're, you know, some of you will, will be great and that's because you've earned it. And some of you will just have to suffer. And, and that that's because you just can't make it in this system, which is really geared against you. Um, We've now had 40 years of that kind of neoliberal thinking and, this is where it's gotten us. I think mm-hmm. we need to change our our thinking and we need to say the well-being of my neighbor, the well-being of people that I don't even know matters to me. I care sure. about that. And the well-being of others actually contributes to my own well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly when we think of people like frontline workers or uh, the people in our community that keep things going in moments of crisis, I I would agree with you. I want to go back to the election after all the votes were counted. (laughs) The BC Green Party lost a seat. The BC NDP won a strong majority. What has the transition been like for you going from a minority government where the BC Greens, through the confidence and supply accord with the BC NDP, effectively held together a stable minority government to now being an opposition party with only two seats under a majority BC NDP government? What's that been like? It's been it's been an interesting transition. And I think that, um, you know, it, it was. It's been an adjustment to go from what had been a lot of communication between us and the government, and a lot of input into bills that were coming forward, into um, you know just sort of the general the general work that was going on. That's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 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 does not exist anymore. Uh, we've gone back to standard playbook of majoritarian government, which is we've got all the power and, you know, we don't really have to talk to or bring anybody else along. So why would we? And I, I, you know, that's disappointing (laughs) to say the least, but I recognized quite early on that in my role, in my new role, which I was uh, just adjusting to as the leader of the party, that all these things that you and I have just talked about, these aspirations for society, these aspirations for this province, that the place that I could start, the place where I have some capacity to influence is internally. So, and that's that's personally, that's me. So, putting, uh, putting in place measures that I am doing to take care of my well-being, I meditate very regularly now, usually twice a day. Oh, okay, cool. I am doing my best to exercise regularly. I spend the time that I spend with at home with family, I just try to sort of, you know, really, I don't know, burrow into the joy that home and family gives me. Uh, and then I wanted to extend that to our organization. So starting with 
um, our caucus office. So Adam and I, the two MLAs, and we have seven staff in our caucus office. And early on, we spent time working on what did we want to put our energy into? We're a two-person opposition caucus, <laughs> right? So we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're not in any way going to be able to affect massive change, but we can put our energy into the things that we think are really, really essential and are neglected. And so um, the mental health piece is very much at the center of our work, and we're going to continue to work on that and advocate for solutions and pass forward. And that encompasses a lot, right? Mm. And so there's our purpose. We established clear purpose going into the December session and then again coming into the, the spring session. What is our purpose and, and how are we going to work on that? And then I talk a lot about joy. I want us to have joy in our work. I want the people that are working with us to also have their well-being uh, at the center of things. I want people to be well in our caucus, in our constituency offices, and ultimately in our entire organization. I want our organization to be healthy and well. I want it to reflect the diversity of this province. I want it to be really uh, existing as a model of what we're striving for. Because I think that unless we can kind of show that, that we're committed to these values and these ideas and these principles in how we operate, it's going to be very hard for us to make the case for government taking these on. So mm-hmm. pur- purpose and joy, health and well-being, uh, I, I don't want there to be any fear in our organization. I want us to be uh, recognizing that we are going to make mistakes, all of us, all the time. And that's good because that's how you learn and that nobody should be afraid of making mistakes. And I want the people that I work with to know that I really, I love and admire and respect them and care for them very deeply. And for us to try to bring some well-being um, to this whole province, we have to start in our own in our own world. And I I respect and admire that, and that makes a lot of sense in terms of the ethos of leadership and the ethos that you were trying to infuse into your own organization. I suppose I mean you've just conceded that the BC Greens have effectively lost influence, and that's the reality hmm. of the situation. So then. How are you exerting the power that you do have to win over either the hearts and minds of the governing party or the hearts and minds of British Columbians? I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, reject the premise of your question, Mo. I don't think we've <laughs> lost influence at all. In fact, if we looked at the data, but you just said, and, and sorry to push back, but you just said that. You, you know, the, the same interactions that you were having before. Okay. You, you don't, we don't have, have you're right. We don't have the same relationship. We don't have the mm-hmm. kind of internal mechanisms that we did before in terms of being able to 
participate in reviewing and uh, amending and adjusting legislation or, you know, that those kinds of internal conversations and discussions. No, you're right. Those aren't happening. Externally, I would say, and again, I'll come back to the data, in terms of our capacity to raise issues, to put issues on the political agenda in this province, I think we've gotten better. Uh, you know, like I said, our priority has been mental health. And, uh, and it's not like we're the only ones that are talking about this, but mm-hmm. we have consistently brought it forward, bringing forward solutions, bringing forward uh, ideas and policies that could be implemented and showing what's possible, making that conversation that's happening in British Columbia about how do we move forward on mental health data with COVID. We have been consistently and relentlessly pushing on this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the, the measure that I look at is, you know, we collect, of course, as do all political parties, the kind of uh, overview of uh, media and how often are we, you know, part of a story, the lead in a story, that kind of thing. And those, those numbers have just consistently gone up. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, what we're able to do because we are clear in our purpose and our intention and we operate from a place of working very hard to be informed by evidence, be informed by experts. Uh, I make it, you know, it's really important to me. It's a priority that when I'm speaking about something, I'm speaking from a place that is informed. If I don't know the answer to something, I'm going to say, I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I, I, being honest, as we started this whole conversation, being honest, being accurate, being backed up by data and, and evidence really matters to me. And part of that's like my training as a historian. You don't make big statements unless you have evidence to back them up. Um, but it's also just how I think governance should work. We shouldn't be uh, relying on political rhetoric. We should be looking at, you know, what are accurate clear, honest solutions that we can be putting forward. So I I think that, um, you know, given that we are a a two-person caucus and a a tiny little team, I I am so fiercely proud of what we're able to accomplish as a little team and the kind of uh, way that we are able to show that politics can be done differently. It can be solution oriented, even as an opposition party. We don't, you know, we, yes, hold the government to account. Yes, we are critical, uh, but it's always a one-two. Mm-hmm. Here's where we think that you're, you're not meeting the expectations that you should be meeting. Here's how we think you can do better. Uh, because I think we have to get away from this deeply partisan divisive kind of politics and say that there's 87 of us who have been elected to represent every British Columbian in this province. And the best way we're going to do that is if we actually listen to each other. One of the themes that has emerged on this podcast this year is the need for universal affordable childcare. And you seem to have a very major role in working with minister Katrina Chen on this file. And again, collaboratively and uh, with a lot of the values that you just talked about, you called this work foundational to the minority government in the last legislative session. 
Has your role now changed on this file? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so again, this is an example where uh, the collaboration hasn't continued, and I, I put this to the government. I mean, you'll hear. Premier Horgan in question period saying, you know, we should all be working together. We should work together. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's up to the people with the power to invite others to the table to work together. I am always ready and willing to work on on this file and many others in particular. I think that one of the things that I pushed for for the three and a half years of the minority government was to recognize that early childhood education is education and needs to be incorporated into the, the public education system. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to recognize the professionalism of early childhood educators. Uh, we need to invest in that capacity and in having enough ECEs in this province to be able to provide that absolutely crucial learning for uh, three to four-year-olds in this province, it is, again, research and the evidence really show that those years are so critical for a child's development, for a mm -hmm. child's relationship with learning for the rest of their lives. Like, how can we not say that this is something that, you know, merits absolute commitment and investment? Uh, and, and, you know, the, the quality childcare that needs to go along with this for, for younger years and to supplement the early childhood education piece is essential. Uh, and so this remains, of course, uh, a huge uh, priority and commitment. And, you know, at any time that I'm invited to contribute again, I will, will gladly do so. And I think that that's something that I, I really want this government to recognize is um, they can talk about working together, but it, it really is up to them to invite and to make that space at the table and to recognize that decision-making is improved when you have more perspectives, more diversity. Uh, and again, when you have not everybody agreeing uh, all the time when you have pushback. Uh, setting aside the perhaps loss of the collaborative approach, is affordable, universal childcare still headed in the right direction? Because there were advocates mm -hmm. who were quite disappointed with mm -hmm. the provincial budget, particularly in this realm. So what's your take? Are we moving slowly? Are we moving backwards? Where are we headed right now with, with childcare? Yeah, I agree with the advocates. Um, this wasn't a time to take the foot off the pedal on affordable, accessible, quality early childhood care. This was the time to lean in, and and you know, again, don't be passive. Don't wait for the federal government. Um, they've made a promise in their budget; it's good. However, we can recognize that the budget that just came out from the federal government is very much a, a campaign document. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, almost everybody is anticipating a fall election. Uh, and so it, that is in no way a guarantee. And so we've started the good work in British Columbia. There's a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And 
ultimately, you know, investing in the infrastructure. And by that, I mean, you know, spaces for early childhood educators looking at a system that if you're wanting to go down this career path, you can start in grade 12 with taking some courses, just as we transition with a lot of here in Couch and we have the trades program where high school mm-hmm. students can get started when they're still in high school. You can get going on your passion, ensuring that it is a, a career that is family supporting um, because how much you value the professionals in this uh, system is also a reflection on how much you value what the children are going to be getting out of it. We need mm-hmm. to value early childhood educators. They are educators. They are teachers. Um, and so that infrastructure piece is essential and it can't just be, you know, the only measure uh, cannot be how many spaces have we made because uh that doesn't take into account the quality and it doesn't take into account uh, the overall uh, experience of both the educators and the kids. We mm-hmm. want quality, accessible, affordable childcare. And if you incorporate early childhood education, three-year-olds and four-year-olds into the public education system, it is guaranteed for every child in British Columbia. Just as we sort of wrap up here, and I know this is a big question, but I'm, I'm hoping we can keep it uh, a little succinct and just give a, a broad overview of your feelings on this. Can you give the listeners an idea of what's happening with Site C? The government is clearly firm on adding more cost and pushing forward. Mm-hmm. Both the BCNDP and BC Liberal parties support it as monumental infrastructure, so what's the big deal? Why are you still opposed to this? So it's not disconnected from the COVID transparency data. There is a lot of secrecy related to Site C and where there's secrecy, uh, people should rightly be concerned and wary of what government is telling us. Um, if they're not releasing reports, if they're not releasing information, if they're hiding things, uh, that is a problem. I think that uh, Site C, and as you point out, both the party, other parties are supportive of it. it. It shows that they're fundamentally ill-equipped to lead us into a modern, innovative economy. Mega projects, and again, you just have to look at the history of mega projects. They are always over cost over time, and they under-deliver. This is the most consistent thing about mega projects everywhere. Mm-hmm. They are bad investments for governments to make. And there have been so many opportunities along the way for both the Liberals and the NDP to back away from this bonfire of what is currently a $16 billion waste, and it's only going to get bigger, um, and what we could have had, and this is what is so distressing, and I remember the grief I felt in 2017, was that vision of distributed, clean, renewable energy projects that create anchor uh, economic opportunities in communities all over BC that mm-hmm. are collaborative with First Nations, that move us into that both distributed energy, but also distributed, just a distributed economy that says let's 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 
flatten the playing field in British Columbia so that wherever you are, there is this anchor for your economy uh, in your community and you're contributing to uh, moving us forward towards transition away from fossil fuels. Sightsee, uh, you know, the NDP like to try to not make this connection, but it exists. It exists in order to provide subsidized electricity to the LNG industry. So it's a $16 billion boondoggle that is going to be an ongoing subsidy to the oil and gas industry at a time when we are seeing impacts from climate change becoming more severe and more constant all the time. It's mind-boggling, Mo. I want to end on this note, and it's going to be asking for your hot take effectively. Okay. If we consider progressivism to be very loosely defined as an ideology that tries, among other things, to encompass more areas of health into public health care, such as mental health and prescription medicine, provide environmental protections to combat climate change, to provide a fair tax burden and leveling out the playing field of opportunity for education, all of these things to seek more equity in disparate systemic outcomes that we currently observe. In your opinion, does British Columbia have a progressive provincial government? No, not really. I mean, and and this goes back to the conversation we've had about the budget, about um, COVID and the data and the decision-making. I, I think a progressive government, as you've described, as you've just detailed, really identifies the the outcomes that you've you've laid out, right? A, a more equitable, less disparate outcomes, better education, better health and well-being outcomes for people. If that's what we're we're considering as as progressive, and then I'm gonna add, you know, a healthy democracy on top of that, then we have to name those outcomes identify the policies that are going to get there and measure our success by how quickly we're moving towards those outcomes. That's what we need to do. And I think that this, this moment we're in um, really gives us, again, this opportunity to say, okay, it's time to reorient. We, we have to move away from uh, the status quo in how we're doing things. And we have to say, I want to be in a province in which everybody's needs can be met. People have the, the conditions to thrive. Our communities are connected and healthy and safe and vibrant and diverse. And we have a, a joy living in our communities. Our natural systems are protecting us because we're protecting them. We can rely on them for clean air and good soil, clean water. And our democratic institutions and our governments are trustworthy. That's the vision I have for British Columbia. And you don't think this current government has been living up to that? No. Fair enough. <laughs> Sonia, this was a pleasure as always. Last time you were here, we shared such a special moment when you pleaded with my friend Harrison Johnston to run for the BC Greens in my home riding of North Vancouver Seymour. Maybe one of my favorite endings to a podcast. I'm not going to try to outdo that, but you know, I want to make it personal again. 
I'd like to give you a minute to shout out or recognize someone or maybe a few people who you think don't get enough credit in making this province a better place. And I'll get the ball rolling. In my mind, CTV's Penny Daflos has been Mm. the MVP in BC media for the past few weeks, maybe the past few months. And that's not to dismiss any other BC journalists. There have been so many that have been working really hard, probably past the point of burnout lately, to inform British Columbians to keep power accountable. But Penny has been, you know, the subject to nastiness online. She's been tone policed, which is something I doubt that her male counterparts see as much. But good Lord, has she been on a roll lately. And so in recognizing many true journalists in BC, I just want to send out a little love and public admiration to Penny Daflos. Oh, I'm so happy to join you in that. In fact, Penny interviewed me about a week and a half ago, and I had to start before we could get into the interview with a a kind of a fangirl period. (laughs) Uh, I'm such a huge fan and admirer of Penny, but there are, you know, and she has done an incredible job, courageous, brave, relentless. Mm -hmm. This is fantastic. There are a number of journalists, and and I think this is a great place to end it. Thank you to the journalists who have been covering this uh, this crisis in British Columbia. Um, to all of you who have been doing your job, and again, it's the job in a democracy of uh, of journalists to hold government to account, to demand truth, to look for the facts, to dig up the evidence. And to ask the really hard questions. And I am just so grateful to the incredible journalists that have been taking this on and relentlessly uh, fighting for, for honesty, accountability, and transparency for 14 months. And keep going. We need you. I love it so much. Sonia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mo. Always such a pleasure. All the best. Okay, take care. People... You knew she'd be back. She's the BC MLA for the Cowichan Valley and the leader of the BC Green Party. She is Sonia First to Know, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>